everyone, and welcome to episode 32 of The Founder's Fable, where we all get together to learn more about startups from other stories and experiences. As always, I'm co-host Savannah, Director of Marketing and New Business at Slingshot, and I've got my other co-host, Dan, Executive Director of Slingshot Ventures. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Savannah. Great to hear, Dan, as always. Um, and today we have a special guest, Chris Good. Chris, how are you doing today? Great. Good to be with you both. Yeah, we're excited to dive into your history and all that fun stuff. But a little teaser for everybody at home. Chris is a strategic growth expert and hands-on leader. He's pioneered merging big data, meteorology, and remote sensing for over 30 years and he's a definitely an industry expert if we've ever seen one. And right now, he is the founder and CEO of the tech startup Climavision. So I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about Climavision later in the episode. But as always, since this is a podcast about founders' journeys, we like to start at the beginning. So Chris, where would you say that your entrepreneurial journey starts? I guess for me... Um... My first exposure to an entrepreneurial kind of scenario would have been when I was 12 years old. And that actually, and I'm dating myself here. Okay. But that's when I got my first paper route. <laughs> and, and in those types Ooh, of okay. uh, setups back in the day, you were actually an independent contractor. So you would go oh, Right. You'd go no out, right? You'd, or... <laughs> you'd invest in the papers, and it was your obligation at that point to go and make sure that you were compensated for the investment in those papers. And again, that was my first exposure. So, and I, I would say that in terms of my latest venture here with Climavision, there was a gap in my entrepreneurial journey, right? It started with paper routes, and it's actually culminated with what we're doing in Climavision. But in the space in between, I wore a lot of different hats that weren't necessarily entrepreneurial. They were working for larger established businesses in between, where I learned a lot of lessons that have been valuable. Savannah, do you know anybody that that's had a paper route? I was going to say, you're not the first founder that said that they had, that was where their entrepreneurial journey started. But um, yeah, to elevate Dan's question. Do you know anybody? No, else I was asking you, Savannah. Do you know anybody who has a paper or... route? Because I, I had oh, a paper route too when I was, I was like twelve. That's what that but like, it's not a thing anymore, right? You yeah. did. Wow. When I was twelve, I was asking <laughs> for my phone. So. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's where um, I'll say some Savannah lore here, as Dan knows. Um, when I was twelve, I created a PowerPoint presentation on why I needed an iPhone. So yeah. that's what uh -huh. I was doing. <laughs> so it's a little well, ironic. A so paper that route, paper route but... I actually had when I was, I, I grew up in Lexington. And, and at that time at 12, I was actually okay. delivering the Courier Journal. So, oh, wow. so a little irony now that I'm hey, joining you okay. from Louisville. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. The interstate Shh. rivalry. Okay, well, <laughs> no, we're not even five minutes into the podcast and I'm already causing a riff. All right, well, Chris, yeah, so we start at 12 and you talked about the gap in the traditional, air quotes, traditional entrepreneurial journey. So talk to me a little bit about what all went on in the meantime in between. I know you've got um, quite a large bit of experience there um, across a lot of different cool places. So I'd love to kind of talk a little bit about those things and how they sure. led you to um, where you're at now. I'd say my path was was non-traditional, uh, but going back as far as I can remember, actually going back to when I was 12, 13, 14, I was always very interested in aviation. I actually started uh, to take flying lessons before right. I could drive. And it was actually through that experience that oh, wow. I became directly impacted by the weather. Um, uh, more than just your your casual uh, engagement in weather, um, but being in an aircraft, a small one at that, a Cessna 152, uh, and moving through the atmosphere, you realize how important it is to understand the weather. Uh, it's more about survival at that point. And so oh, yeah. from that kind of early interest, 
I actually was in the Air Force and became an Air Force weather forecaster, which was, again, critical in terms of getting the early lessons and understanding weather and weather's impact on various industries, of course, aviation. But then as I moved on in my career, oh, yeah. understanding the impact in other businesses as well. Um, I, after the Air Force, I started to work for a company called Weather Services International, which ultimately became part of the Weather Channel family of companies. Uh, okay, that's a, that's a brand we I all wore know. several different hats in that organization. Uh, became exposed again to some of the technical uh, backbone functions of weather, how that weather was manipulated, massaged, and then moved into numerical weather prediction or forecast models. And then, of course, how is that information consumed um, by the general public, but also mm -hmm. by different businesses that are impacted by weather? Right, because you were on both sides. I mean, obviously, we're all consumers. We all have wake up in the morning and have to figure out if we got to grab that umbrella or not. But then you've also seen it from the other side where, like you said, it's critical to survival and is so impactful yeah, on all these so, other businesses. Yeah, it, goes, it went beyond your the impact to your lifestyle, right? And what you needed to dress for the day, but it was then quickly moved into... Uh, can a T-38, which is a training jet fighter in the Air Force, it's very, very sensitive to icing scenarios. So when you're doing an aviation forecast, you need to understand that Ooh. with real granularity or you risk um, a big problem, losing the aircraft or more importantly, pot potentially losing a life to that. So those types of experiences really molded me right. when I was young and formed part of the impetus behind what we are doing now at Climate Vision. Chris, do you know why they lost the airplane over South Carolina last week? I do not. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I do, do you have any speculations? Uh, really? No, 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 no. This is no not speculation. A Obviously, weather <laughs> tends to always be somebody or something that people look into in those situations, but I don't believe uh, in that case that it was weather impacted. But often happens in aviation, right, where you have a weather incident or situation. And in those types of situations, uh, aside from that F-35, but when you just look at commercial aircraft and, and air carriers right now, because of the changing climate, we are starting to see an increase in some frequency of turbulence and turbulent related events that can cause a, a pretty mm. big disruption um, and certainly threaten uh, public safety. So you're telling us that the climate's changing, Chris? Yeah. Like, is that a real thing? Yeah, I'm not breaking any news there. Uh, <laughs> I, it's definitely changing. Um, yeah. And, and we're seeing a lot of just, you just look at objectively. When you look at the, uh, the right. billion dollar events that are occurring really since the 1980s all the way through now, mm -hmm. it has been on the rise, um, both the, the frequency of these types of events, but also just the increasing volatility. You just look at the state of Kentucky, right? You just over the past couple of years, you have a major tornado outbreak in the western part of the state in the month of December. Now, yeah, that type of activity is is not normal. It's not to say that it hasn't happened in the past, but the, the again, the frequency of these types of events is occurring um, at an unprecedented rate. And then you had the floods yeah. going back a year ago in eastern Kentucky. So we here in the state of Kentucky are intimately aware of, of that changing climate. And what we're trying to do at Climate Vision is mitigate the impacts of those things. We can't, of course, prevent them from occurring. But what we're trying to do is provide better lead times so that we and the public can, can prepare uh, more adequately. And, of course, businesses uh, the same. Going back to kind of what you were talking about, I find it interesting. Like we've talked to a number of people in the past who, you know, some were aware that they were going to corporate America so they could learn certain things and then create their own business at the end. And some others were, which it sounds like it's probably along your lines, where they go down into certain things and they recognize there's a better way to do something. Um, and they want to, you know, come out and take what they've learned from previous life experiences and apply it to maybe this one business they were a part of. And, create something new. Um, but it sounds, you know, when you talk about the weather, we can measure it, but it's pretty abstract, right? And it, it can change quickly. And, you know, we can define certain things and other things just seem to be undefinable, which obviously you're the expert, so you can correct me on that. But 
I, I wonder what how does how does going into aviation and diving into weather, how's that kind of shape the way that you've engaged in the business world and and kind of come up with kind of what hey, this is what I want to do or this is where I want to go? Like right. how does that play a role or does it? Well, part of what has always intrigued me about weather meteorology is this is a massive problem with so many variables, right? It is almost incalculable because the weather, people tend to think about it in their own personal circumstance. So the weather, what's it like here today in Louisville? Well, what it's like today here in Louisville is impacted by what's going on overseas. The weather patterns are global. They're always moving, they're very dynamic. And so to try to capture what is happening with the weather at any point in time is the most critical component of putting together a forecast. It's capturing the now. And so when, when I think about my experience over the past few decades in this space, whether it was with the Weather Channel, whether it was with or whether it was with the weather radar manufacturing entity in Alabama, where we were creating the sensors, or with another company called AirDat, in each of those stops, we were all trying to create a better forecast. But for the most part, we were trying to create a better forecast by leveraging the same public data set. So the data sets that are collected by the U.S. government, NOAA and the National Weather Service, or data that's collected in Korea or several other countries that are all part of what's called the WMO, World Meteorological Organization. All of those members are contributing data sets that we use on a global scale to assimilate into forecast models. And again, at each of those previous stops, each of those companies was bringing in that same data set and all efforting to create a better forecast. But the problem was, was we were all gated in our ability to do, by, do that by using the same data. So what we're doing at ClimaVision is bringing new data into the equation that captures this moment in time, the now. And by doing that, we directly impact the fidelity and accuracy of the forecast models that we're also running. So that, that was kind of the main difference there. I'm a dot connector. Um, part of what we've done at ClimaVision is I've leveraged the network that I've created over the past 30 years. Talented people at each of those stops and reassembled them underneath the umbrella that's now ClimaVision to leverage all of their unique talents and, and really employ what is really a different approach to creating a better forecast. I mean, this kind of ties into this movement that's been happening over the last decade or so about big data and new data and how to actually leverage it as opposed to just gathering it and then letting it kind of sit there. Um, so I, I just find it fascinating that how much we can improve on data just based on actually thinking about it and how we want to leverage it. Well, Dan, I, I was going to kind of echo that, but... It it's it's like Einstein, right? You do the same thing and you expect different results. You're going to end up in sanity. And I can't help but think of a Mexican mm. restaurant listening to you talk, right? Like, hey, we got 10 ingredients. Look, how big can we make this menu with 10 ingredients, right? Like, regard, regardless if it's fried or not fried, method. like, you know, it's still a, a, something like a burrito. Um, and so, I, so is it the mm. technology? <laughs> is that like when you, when you decided to start Climate Vision, was it the matter... Was it a matter of like going, oh, wow, we can now gain access. We can become aware of what's happening in various places that we couldn't become aware of before. That's mm -hmm. really going to change this whole game. Connect Let me bring dots. a team that understands the impact of having more data and leverage kind of my vision of bringing it all together and then put these people into the sandbox. And then from there, try to you know pull out insights. There's so many layers to this, and it's nice that we kind of have an extended period to kind of peel these layers back because it, it's all of that and a little bit more, Dan. Uh, when you talk about the technology that's available today, certainly when people talk about machine learning, AI, all of those pieces, those are all important to what we're all doing. All the buzzwords. But for us, they happen more towards the back end of the overall process and value chain. The, the fundamental difference in our approach, just to kind of reiterate on this, is we go further upstream in the traditional process. We start at the very beginning. My chief scientist, Peter Childs, likes to use the baseball analogy. Most of the companies, and even the government to some extent, 
Um, if you're playing a baseball game, they're starting in the fourth or fifth inning. We're starting in the first inning. That first inning means that we're starting with this original data set, this global data set, enriching mm -hmm. that, filtering that. In some instances, using AI to create a better yield of that existing data set. But starting that far upstream allows us then to assimilate this data into our own models and fully harness it to your, I think your word, um, harness that information and then create the outputs uh, for various businesses and for public consumption. And the people that it takes to do that, uh, that's not, there's not a huge number of those people worldwide. And I've assembled some very, very talented people in data assimilation and numerical weather prediction who have learned the art and the science of data assimilation at other companies. And now we're giving them the ability to, to further leverage those talents because now they have more data to work with. And we haven't talked a lot about what that data is. So at Climate Vision, we're actually we're rolling out a supplemental <laughs> national radar network that will augment the NOAA slash National Weather Service NEXRAD network. The NEXRAD network is what we're all accustomed to looking at. If you use any app on your phone and you look at weather radar, that's what you're looking at. It's the government provisioned radar. Mm -hmm. And it's a solid network. But much like the other sources of information that we attempt to collect globally, even though it's a great network, it does have blind spots or gaps. But you just wouldn't realize it because typically we're looking at this data in two dimensions. But you think about it in three dimensions mm -hmm. and the thing and, and, and it starts to change. And by that, I mean, if you take a radar, let's take the radar that we have here in Kentucky uh, down in Jackson. For each radar, the further you move away from that radar, the higher the beam of energy is transmitted from that radar. It gets higher and higher in the atmosphere. And then when you couple it with the curvature of the earth, it creates these low level data void areas or gaps. So we're, we're really focused on filling in these gaps across the entire country. And those gaps uh, are, are really prevalent when you get below 5,000 feet so 5,000 feet above ground level and, and, and mm. downward is where you have the most acute problem with this. In fact, about 70% of the country is blind at these lower levels. And that's where we're focused on filling in right now. Oh. So that's why we get angry at the weather people. Okay. In part. In part. <laughs> because <laughs> because they're, 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 they're limited. They've got all these blind spots. And they're like, because my, my wife always says, God. If I was this bad at my job, I'd get fired. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's usually like picnics <laughs> and stuff like that. Not, you know, normal Monday, but but the industry changes does, schedule. You know, the industry's made huge leaps, even with these gaps yeah. to improve. Um, you know, you can confidently now put out a forecast for three days and get fairly close, right? I mean, there are exceptions to that, but gaps not only in weather mm -hmm. radar data, but gaps in other really critical types of data that are collected in the upper atmosphere are also problematic for medium and longer term forecasts. So the other area that we're looking to fill in mm. is with, with radio occultation data. And this data is collected by low earth orbiting satellites that we partner with to also bring that information into our, our modeling as well. And, and this data is critical because right now there's mm. about 800 locations globally where balloons are launched those balloons collect some important data um, to inform our weather models. And with only 800 locations globally, and the, it's not. I was going to say that's across the entire globe. I mean, 800 maybe for yeah, the U.S. It's incredibly covered, insufficient, but... especially when you consider you, you're you're very you know you're operating in a in a very data sparse area across the oceans. Nobody's launching balloons over the ocean. So this other type of data that is brought in, right. again, if you think of the earth as this giant pin cushion, you're trying to drop more pins in that pin cushion. And as you do that, you get a better sense of what is actually happening now, which again, leads to better predictive analytics and what's gonna happen in the future. That's right. So yeah, more accurate. Let's go back before you start climate vision. When do you make the choice? to start the business and 
Yeah. And what's the, what's the, what's the big thing that shows up for you as you're stepping into becoming an entrepreneur of, of, of a business that knows all the things that you know, but now there's all this other stuff that, you know, founders and entrepreneurs are very aware of. Right. What's that look like for you? Right. So I started to, uh, to noodle the concept of climate vision about five years ago now. Uh, and, and part of my experience at the weather radar manufacturing entity, uh, we were in the process of rolling out government networks, international government networks, places like Sweden, Korea, Germany. We built those networks for them. And then, of course, those governments would then own and operate those radars. And while those were very successful implementations of weather radar technology, those governments had the inherent capabilities to maintain and, and leverage the information produced by those networks. But we also deployed networks in other areas, developing countries. And it was through that experience that I began to think about, depending on the internal capacity of each of these, uh, each of these countries, uh, it might make more sense to actually develop a business model where country A, B, or C wasn't actually buying the actual asset, the radar in this case, but it might make more sense to invest the hardware in the hardware and then monetize the investment in the hardware through subscription services, therefore remo removing the overhead and the burden of these particular countries to have to maintain those units. Because in the traditional model where it was a capital right. transaction, what would often happen is we go and build and deploy these networks in these countries, but then they would immediately begin to atrophy. And so yeah. maybe two, right. you had technology that was just slowly dying because it wasn't being maintained properly. Right, because that goes back to the talent that you talked about earlier in the episode it was so hard for you to find the talent imagine all these other countries and entities trying to find them that's right to well, especially developing countries yeah right because the technology it's living right. and breathing you know you're upgrading it uh, you know no different than your your car you've got to take care of it do the preventive maintenance and and do things proactively not reactively and uh, that really started to mm -hmm. form part of the impetus of climate vision which is this radar as a service as we call it and while we are focused right now is on rolling out radar infrastructure here in the u.s to fill these gaps that we talked about there's definitely an opportunity for us to do this selectively mm -hmm. in different regions around the globe to help fill in those respective gaps because remember everything is connected it's all interconnected um and mm -hmm. and, and that was a big part of it and i thought that whatever this new company was that I started to think about, it needed to be able to roll out proprietary uh, networks, data networks to, to fill these gaps globally. And then at the same time, be able to harness it in the predictive models that we would create. So you're doing the same thing a lot of us, because you know, when we build software and uh, you know, we talk a lot, Savannah and I talk all the time to people about and what do I want to build? And this is what I want to build. And we're like, yeah, you actually talk to the person who's going to buy it. Like, you know, are you going to making sure that the, the interface that you have or the, the model that you're going, you know, the business model that you're going to employ is actually going to fit the need of your customer. So a lot of times you go out and find those kind of early adopters that allow you to kind of investigate that. I would imagine this is much, I mean, you're talking about super scientific, you know, we're talking about hardware in the sky crunching a lot. Yeah. Crunching a lot Very of data, niche. but you probably still follow the same route or do you not? Like, how do you get to that kind of those beta groups and what's that look like for you to adopt them? Well, when we were forming the thesis for the business, uh, there was a lot of outreach that was done beforehand to, we knew inherently how it would resonate, but when it comes to monetizing it, you have to get a bit more granular and, and have direct conversations about that. And people often ask me, who are your customers? Mm -hmm. um, we're primarily B2B, right? So the brand name Climate Vision at this point okay. is not widely known. Now that can change over time, but right now we're focused on supporting other businesses with this critical intelligence so that they can optimize um, their respective businesses. So right now our customers are in any weather sensitive vertical. 
and and primarily they're coming from the energy and okay. utility space. I mean, I often get the question, you know, why now? Why hasn't this been done before? And, and to me, there's three main reasons right. that, that I talk about. One we touched on early in the conversation, that is the changing climate, right? So when you have this kind of increase in volatility, it becomes inherent that you have better information around it to understand it. But the second thing that has really played heavily into the overall equation of why now is the energy transition itself. We're, we're efforting to move to renewable forms of energy, which are often derived from what? Weather. Whether it's wind or solar yep. <laughs> or hydro. And solar. so that second dynamic, I think, is incredibly important to what made the thesis behind Climate Vision work. I think if we were to have tried this 15 years ago, it wouldn't have had the same it wouldn't have resonated the same, I think, with people because people were just coming aware of the climate right. situation and what's happening there. And we certainly hadn't embraced the pathway to renewable forms of energy like we have now. And the third thing is, is also an emerging sector, which is drones and advanced aerial mobility. These low level gaps that I described mm -hmm. to you earlier as it pertained to, to weather radar information, they're incredibly important because these drones and other advanced aerial mobility vehicles are all flying at the lower levels of the atmosphere. And if you don't have good information about those low levels, mm. operationally, it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, so those are the three major things, I think, that right. really drove uh, the thesis behind what we're doing now and also has created the customer base that we're serving in many instances with energy and utilities we're also servicing the media space. So where we have radars that are deployed right okay. now, which we have 20 out uh, across the Southeast and South Central part of the country, in virtually every instance, you have a local uh, local television partner that is using that information to pass along to their viewers as well. And then you think about transportation, ah, aviation okay. or ground, um, some more customers, and then in the agricultural space as well. I would love to talk a little bit about the B2B customer space um, because a lot of startups focus on the B2C side, but I think there is a large, especially in the tech space when it's software as a service that has to sell to B2B customers. And so I was curious if we could just talk a little bit about what that kind of sales looks like for you and what advice you might have for a startup that is trying to sell to these B2B entities, but is just getting started, maybe hasn't done sales before. Kind of what would your Well, I think if you be? contrast what I would characterize as more of a typical entrepreneurial venture, right? With what we're doing at Climate Vision. Mm -hmm. So typically someone will have a software or a service and they they go deep into one industry vertical, and it may be mm -hmm. a B two C play, but with Climate Vision, we're B two B, and we actually to unlock the full potential of our business model, we actually have to go very broad. So, it's 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 a different sort of play. But for me, on the B two B side of things, mm -hmm. I guess it depends on the type of product or service that you're launching, right? Um, if it's more advantageous for you to remain under the radar and do a B2B play, oftentimes that can make perfect sense. Um, instead of having to create a brand from mm -hmm. nothing, you can then begin to partner or employ a B2B sales strategy that might not be quite as heavy a lift in terms of having to create that momentum. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for us, it made perfect sense because we're about enabling businesses to perform better using their own decision platforms, but maybe perhaps integrating our data feed into that ecosystem. Um, so it, it made perfect sense for us, but it really comes down to the type of product or service that the entrepreneur is standing up, right? So what's it look like when you guys get your beyond the thesis and you're like, all right, we're gonna start climate. I mean, what do you do? I mean, it's just you at this time, right? You haven't recruited yeah, you haven't recruited the team one? because I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like what you're talking about. Like you're you're we talked before, you know, we started recording that non-traditional and and I 
I would agree that most of the people we talk to are non-traditional when we think about what people are trying to do today. But the fact that you've got mm-hmm. something that's so kind of out way out there, right? It's it's about weather and how am I keeping track of it, right? And it is a very niche space, but you have a broad market. So when you make this, like, mm-hmm. what is it that you learn? Like early on where you're like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. Or, oh my God, I'm going to be able to do this. Like, where did you start as far as like, I need to build momentum to share this idea to, to kind of get people on board with what I'm doing and those kind of things. Yeah. So after I started noodling the concept of climate vision, right? Uh, I certainly was in noodling, which I love that phrase, by the way, (laughs) noodling. I feel like I've heard it in the past at some point, but it's now I can I can just know that it's going to be in my daily. Well, so, (laughs) yeah, so this noodling process, um, immediately I started to think about, you know, what kind of investment is this going to take? I mean, deploying radars is is not uh, an inexpensive venture. Definitely. So you start to think about how do I go out and do this capital raise? Well, for, for us, I knew I needed to raise a lot of capital because we were going to invest in these assets, right? And, mm-hmm. and that largely upfront. So uh, we started officially with an announcement of June of 2021 that we had raised $100 million through TPG, which is a Ooh. private equity firm. It was specifically out of the RISE Fund on the West Coast. Okay. Now, again, if we're talking about entrepreneurial journeys here, often what you have is a founder that starts out with some seed money. Mm-hmm. They start to prototype and then they move into subsequent raises of capital. The rounds, yeah. I took a somewhat different approach because we needed to. Because we needed to raise that kind of money, I gave up a lot at the beginning as, yeah. a, as opposed to incrementally or progressively giving up ownership. I did a lot of that up front because what I did not want to have happen is I didn't want to launch the business and then immediately become consumed with the next raise mm. as opposed to yeah. being able to focus on the business. So yeah. that was a strategic play. And I'm really glad that we handled it in that way because it's it's done exactly as we intended. It's allowed me and my executive team here to really focus on the business and building that with less emphasis around the next raise of capital. Okay. And TPG has been, been a great partner for us uh, from day one. And it's it just really helped propel the business and move things a lot faster. Just as recently as two weeks ago, September 7th, we actually began fulfilling a federal contract with NOAA. Okay. So span, oh, that's awesome. A span of about two years, uh, we yeah. were able to move that very quickly. And if we had been distracted with more of the the back end capital raises of the business. I don't know that we could have moved as fast as we have. Oh yeah, definitely. So how many how many calls does it take to get to that one <laughs> that one group? You know, well, like it, that's a great question, David. And the 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 whole the teeth of that initial capital raise was done during COVID. Every Ooh, bit of so it. Zoom calls. <laughs> Absolutely, and. It was an incredible experience. I mean, again, I don't wish to go through anything like COVID ever again. But as I look back on it now, uh, it created a situation for us where there was sole focus. Uh, We were all working from our respective homes, of course, during that period. Mm -hmm. But during the process of speaking to hundreds of different potential investors, Mm. uh, I it was actually very uh, an effective way to move through that. We had the sole focus of everyone that we talked to. We were doing it by Zoom. We weren't making trips. So in some way, <laughs> it was a bit more efficient, right? Because you didn't have travel. Yeah. And fly all the way to California and back. <laughs> Not one flight during that period, right? So um, it was a unique experience. Uh, and of course, being on platforms like Zoom, and others. I I have vivid memories of talking to potential investors and in some instances having 30 squares lit up on the screen at the same time, um, which is intimidating. (laughs) that many people. Uh, It isn't, you know, you don't have any kind of personal rapport. You haven't shared a cup of coffee before you start. So it can be intimidating, 
but you also like anything you do get used to it. Uh, and, and it was very helpful. So it was a unique experience. And I'll share with you that I never met anyone in person at TPG until two months after the transaction closed. Oof. So I don't know how unique it is as compared to other experiences, but it was very unique to me to yeah. raise a million dollars and not having made a handshake. I definitely think that that is more common during COVID, post-COVID, and would say that pre-COVID, that that would be extremely rare. But as you said, the new climate, <laughs> the new world that we're living in, it there is this use of technology, online communication that we're all utilizing and accessing. So while it's it still seems crazy, I do think it's more realistic now. I think that that cost the bottom line that you got from that is still absolutely insane so yeah. dan uh, before i ask yeah, the next question did you want to well one of my rabbit holes and i will skim it just the covid changed the behaviors of people right and mm -hmm. we, the whole idea of becoming aware when you become aware of something that you can change behaviors and i think when i used to goof with my friends i'm like who are you when the doer can't do and mm -hmm. uh you know so all of a sudden you're bored at home, you know, where you may have been driving to an appointment or sitting in this meeting or sitting in that meeting. And so I think to a certain degree, it's almost easier or was easier to engage in sales activities and meeting new people because there was no threat of having to get through a meeting or go to someplace you don't want to go. It's just like 20 minutes on a screen. Yep. Uh, and I have nothing else to do. So here we go. So it, I mean, we can't go, you'd never be able to test it, but the idea that if that didn't happen, would you raise that money as quickly as you did, right? Would you get to go back just to level of efficiencies? Because you're not, you're talking about a large chunk of change, right? And that's, yeah. that's a huge ask for someone that's really just led on your, your ability to, you know, talk about the topic and know that you're an, an expert, right? They're investing in you and your team around this thing. Um, so it's really, they're buying you all and what you know. Mm -hmm. No question. Hoping that you guys can follow through, right? Yeah. So right. that's awesome. Yeah, it was a very unique um, experience. Um, and you know, one thing that we haven't talked a lot about, and I do want to make sure I highlight this, is that I, I did grow up in the state of Kentucky in Lexington. Mm -hmm. uh, my family, we, we moved there when I was young, first grade, um, just outside of Chicago, uh, and moved down to to Kentucky. My father was active. Um, he was a mechanical engineer, was developing uh, equipment, initially equipment that was used in some of the coal mines. Mm. Uh, and I've, I've moved all over. I've lived in, in several places around, around the country, Seattle, uh, Boston, uh, the Atlanta area, Southern Alabama. And wow. I'm really grateful for having that exposure to different parts of the country. But when I started to think about what we could do with climate vision it was important for me to to do that here in the state of kentucky one of the things that really motivates me is i don't like when people or places are underestimated mm -hmm. and equally i don't like when people and places are overestimated uh the truth is realistic <laughs> the truth always lies somewhere in between yeah and uh, you know for me kentucky is a place that is often underestimated and so I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. And I wanted to do that here. And, right. you know, we, we obviously operate in other places. Our, our research uh, and development office is over in Raleigh. Mm -hmm. But the core of what we do, uh, including myself and, and our some of our leadership team, is located right here in Louisville. And we want to build on that. Um, there's an announcement coming out shortly about further investment in the state in terms of the gap filling network that we're rolling out. Oh, keep your eyes uh, peeled, I'm really, listeners. <laughs> I'm really excited about that because again, we've done things in other places and now part of the plan is to, to build that out in this part of the country as well. So that's all happening within the next couple of months and, and there will be some more news on that. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And yeah. I, I like to be able yeah. to do that from, from the state of Kentucky and, and in this case from Louisville. Yeah, because we talk no, I I mean, think a, that's lot awesome. of, a lot of what we talk about is the Louisville startup scene, the Kentucky startup scene. And a lot of people talk about how 
they have a connection to Louisville. They have a connection to Kentucky. And that is part of the reason that they want to build here. Um, and so I like to hear that even after you went to some of the bigger startup cities like Chicago, like Boston, instead of staying there, you moved back to your roots and started a business here. Um, especially a business that has um, some social good tied to it of working with climate change and things like that. Um, so it's really cool to hear, but again, Dan, you were going to say something. Well, I think, you know, we've talked about this numerous times before, but because you're not those places and whether it's because mm -hmm. we all are carrying a little chip on our shoulder. I mean, I grew up in Maryland, but I've been here since 98. Um, you just have access Right. And, and I, I often talk that most of my friends aren't from the state of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, they're from somewhere else. And I think that there's an element of the transplant personality, right? The people who've had to move. And so you have to adapt. And when you get them all in one place and then like, you know, you, you enjoy where you are. And then everyone, like you were saying, like Louisville's Kentucky is always at the bottom of every national list of anything, you know, it's about being good. You start to like, man, I don't like this. Right. And so there's almost like this a momentum of like, well, let's show, let's show people that it's different in, in spite of these challenges, like it still has challenges, right? There are companies that I know of that have thought about moving mm -hmm. or at least changing their office address to someplace more populous because people aren't taking their calls when they realize that they live in Louisville, Kentucky, or they're mm -hmm. operating in Louisville, Kentucky or another part of the state. Um, and I think that's, that's a thing, but it's, because you're looking at the list, right? Like Kentucky's falling at the bottom. And so I really appreciate the fact that you all are doing that and you've made a choice to be here and to continue to invest in that because it's people like us, we continue to do that. Well, all of a sudden that list is going to start to look different. And the people who show up early are, I think have a great opportunity to benefit the most because that accessibility is going to change when you have density, right? It just, it's just going to look different. And so, um, I'm actually fortunate to be a part of it and what we do at Slingshot, but it's nice to meet other people like-minded in that way of saying, all right, man, I see, I see your list, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's right. I appreciate that. No reason why things can't be done here that are very compelling uh, businesses. Uh, I mean, obviously the state has a reputation for being bourbon capital, right? Bourbon basketball courses. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In no, in, in, in not that order necessarily. I was going to say, <laughs> but, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of potential here. Um, uh, and I think, you know, that, that, that story evolves over time, but I couldn't be happier to, to, to have started it here and, and to kind of continue that. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to talk, I would say we're getting close to the end, not fully there yet. Um, but before the famous final question, I wanted to talk a little bit about your side of the investment um, that you received, because we talk a lot about how an investor choosing you, what may be more important is you choosing the investor. You want to make sure that you've got a great team with you as you're getting started. So I want to hear from you a little bit maybe how did you decide that TBG was the right partner for you guys? Um, and kind of what did that like early relationship look like? And how did you know that that was where you wanted to um, invest your equity in? Well, TPG as a firm is very focused on climate. And, and by that, I mean, shortly after we announced our raise with them, they launched two huge climate funds. Oh, nice. So, when you think about the ecosystem of TPG, um, obviously the capital was extremely important to what we're doing, no doubt. Right. Beyond that, um, their philosophy about investment in the environmental space was important. They value that. It's not just about the return on the business, it's about the impact of the business. So that really resonated with them and in turn it resonated with me. And as I mentioned before, they couldn't have been a better partner. Um, they've been incredible. And we've been plugged in to several of the companies that are involved in their climate funds. So those connections provide customers, partnerships, yeah. et cetera. 
So to me, that's been extremely valuable to us. And we're known within their portfolio as an enabling solution. So okay. within the energy transition of which they've made a lot of investments as well, um, they consider us an entity that can better inform these energy providers, again, the renewable space, on not only how much of those renewables are available, but in some cases, right, the demand of energy is because of weather as well. One yeah. of the areas of the U.S. that gets a lot of press is the ERCOT region over Texas. Because whether it's a heat wave or a couple of years ago, there was a massive cold snap that nearly I remember that brought the grid to its knees. Mm -hmm. So having a much better understanding of weather and the impacts is, is a big deal in terms of grid optimization at this point, which has provided us a, a lot of nice traction with customers in that vertical. Okay. Um. I know we were getting close to time. You can ask one more question, Dan. Put the, put the, put the kibosh <laughs> on me. Um, I'm curious because, again, you're an expert in, in such a, a big field, right, that impacts everything. Mm -hmm. But it's still a business. And, you're, and you had to raise the money and, and you know, went through the, all of that. You get up and running and you start doing your thing. What's the big, what's one thing that you learned that you didn't know? that really challenged your like, oh my God, are we going to be able to pull this off? It's a good question, Dan. Um, I get similar questions a lot. Um, one recent question that kind of plays off of what you're saying is, Chris, how do you know when your company has arrived? Mm. I don't, right? right yeah. You I mean, never want to. I, to right? me, that's something that hopefully in your mind, you never think that you've arrived because the moment that you do, something's going to get thrown at you and turn you side. Mm -hmm. um, I guess there's so many things that go through my mind on this point, but I think is the mindset that you have to have is there are things that are going to go right or as, as you thought they would, and then mm -hmm. there are going to be things that don't. And to me, the most important ingredient, which I, I don't, I, I sometimes fail at, right, to this day is you have to keep a mindset of this resiliency and trying to keep things balanced. Otherwise, I mean, just the, the journey of an entrepreneur is, is unavoidably going to be a roller coaster. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I don't think you hear of any sure. story where it just... Everything's perfect all of the time. Just doesn't happen. And I think that for me, as opposed to pointing out the single thing that I didn't know that spun me around is there's been several. Mm -hmm. And I think... Just letting that wash over you, thinking about it, and then pivoting, which we've had to do in the business. We did have some assumptions about things that didn't pan out, so it caused us to have to pivot and and to to react, which we did successfully, right? And uh, it's our entire team that was able to do that. Um, obviously, I was trying to lead that effort, but to me, it's about resiliency. It's about not getting that not getting knocked back on your heels, mm -hmm. but just trying to keep a stable foundation and and, and not being reactive. Um, I guess that's been the biggest lesson. Yeah. yeah. Savannah, Chris doesn't know that he just explained what it's like to become a parent. Oh, no. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast, Dan. <laughs> because what I heard him say is, when you act like you know what, how to be a parent with a newborn, all of a sudden the cluster feeding starts, all of a sudden the teething starts, all of a sudden the neck thing. So you just stop going, I know what's going on. You're like, all right, let's just do this. We're let's just, just rolling going, with right? it. Yeah, it just becomes yeah, a matter of, what... <laughs> of being efficient, right? It just becomes efficient. How can I manage this, right? Yeah, As and we've talked yeah. about how of being a founder is like being a parent and you, your startup is your baby. You can't be, <laughs> you gotta be again, yeah. resilient, efficient, Effective. I, I think that's true. Um, there's a lot of other analogies that go into play. I think also as a parent, you, has, you also have to learn how to allow your children to be affected by other things, right? Mm -hmm. So as yeah. you grow your business, oh, yeah. you also have to, to let go a little bit. And even mm -hmm. being just a little over two years in, I've had to learn a little bit of that. You, you can't have everything funnel through the same person or else your organization mm -hmm. can't grow. So you have to yeah. let go a little bit too. Delegate. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard, man. <laughs> it's so hard for my wife. 
to trust me with anything. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's a whole nother podcast, Dan. But <laughs> hey, we'll skip over that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> because we are getting close to the end here, and I want to make sure that we ask everyone's favorite question to wrap up kind of the overall timeline. Um, and we may have just talked about it a little bit, so maybe we could just nail nail it down real quick here. But Chris, if you could only have one moral to your entrepreneurial story, what would you share? What is the most important lesson you think? Yeah, I, I guess we did explore it a little bit in that last uh, exchange. I mean, thanks, Dan. Me, <laughs> it is all about resiliency. It's all about that. I mean, because even the most well thought through business plan is going to go sideways at some point, some aspect of it. Uh, and you, you have to be okay with that. Um, and you have to just think about your way. How do you navigate through it? How do you make the best of the situation? Uh, I think that's been the biggest thing for me. Um, and, you know, again, going back to this non-traditional kind of uh, characterization that I put on what we're doing at Climate Vision, and especially for me personally, it's rare that you have somebody that starts a new business at age 50. Typically, you know, the typical entrepreneur you think of as being much younger. Um, but I can't imagine doing it any other way because I simply would not have been as well informed as I was at age 50. And, and so it's different for everyone. But for me, um, I'm glad that, you know, I had a gap between that paper out at 12 and Climate Vision <laughs> at 50 because it allowed me to grow in a lot of different directions. And the other thing it allowed me to do is it allowed me to grow the network of people that have now joined me at Climate Vision. Yeah. Uh, that's really the most critical element in all this. If you don't have a good, solid team that you know, you trust, all of that was there from day one for me. And it it's helped make us a success to this point. Um, so I really valued that experience ahead of starting the business in June of 21. Okay. Yeah. Well, great callback yeah, to the beginning, awesome. by the way. <laughs> so Chris, thank you so much for jumping on and talking with Dan and myself. Um, the actual last question, where can listeners find you and maybe some more information about ClimaVision? Yeah. So our, our marketing team, Marketing team does a great job of getting us out there. The, the website's easyclimavision.com. Talks about uh, where we're going to be. Um, a lot of different uh, exhibits and trade shows and conferences that we attend. Um, and certainly you can find us on uh, what is now known as X. Uh, <laughs> we're posting all of our, our, our developments on X as well. Uh, and have a, a pretty dynamic blog that we're building as well on the website. So uh, I really appreciate you having me on today and, and really appreciate the opportunity to, to share our story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one final thank you, Chris, for jumping on. Dan, great questions. And listeners, thanks yeah. for being here. Uh, everybody have a good day and we'll see you next month. Bye, y'all.